Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this extra bonus self-isolation episode of Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and as always, I'm joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? We're doing great, David. Good, David. Yeah. How are you? Good. So we are here to discuss a new movie that is now on video on demand, wherever you get your video on demand, Amazon, iTunes, whatever it might be. And that is the new version of the film, Emma. It was uh, in theaters before all the theaters or almost all the theaters closed. And, you know, well, not closed, but I guess, you know, temporarily suspended business. And we figured, you know, this has now been put on, on video on demand. You can rent it. Um, it's more pricey than most Amazon rentals just because it's, you know, it's making up for the studios for theater sales. So if you treat it like, you know, you're going to a movie and it's a date, then, you know, 19 bucks or whatever it is to rent it is, uh, doesn't, doesn't feel as bad, right? Right? We, can we go with that? Is that is that a fair take? You think? Absolutely. The quality of the movie also helps a tremendous amount. That is true, and we are going to get to that in a minute. So, just want to remind you that uh, you can join the conversation as always at a number of different places. We have the Facebook group. Go over to Facebook, type in Close Reads in that search bar, join the group, join the conversation. If you head over to Instagram, we are at Close Reads Pods, and of course, there is our newsletter, Close Reads. Uh, dot substack.com. If you want to email us directly, it's close reads podcasts at gmail.com. So lots of great ways you can join the conversation about this movie and about the other uh, things that we are talking about. We are of course discussing Anne of Green Gables on the regular show. And then over on our Patreon feed for the, uh, for the Patreon supporters, we are working our way through crime and punishment. And early next week we'll record the first few, um, all right, we will record an episode on the first few chapters of part three. So um, that's the that's the gist of what's been going on around here. Quickly, before we dive into Emma though, Tim, besides Emma, what have you been watching and maybe even reading a little bit? How have you been passing the time besides work uh, while you've been in, you know, sort of self-isolation up there in Seattle? I'm reading. Um, so I started re- watching the last season and a half of The Wire. Mm-hmm again, because I just can't get enough. Um, and yeah. I never watched Breaking Bad. And so I am watching season two. I, that's not correct. I watched the first season of Breaking Bad and now I'm watching okay. the second season of Breaking okay. Bad. Man, that show is rough. <laughs> rough. It's rough, but it's great. It is really good. Does it, uh, so where does it stand for you on the, well, here, actually, let me, let me ask, let me ask you this. What are your top five favorite TV shows ever? Yeah, oh, I didn't, we've never talked about this that I know of. So this is an on the spot thing, but if you had to just, just, just instinctively, what's your gut feeling for your top five favorite TV shows? Sounds like the wire is on that list. The wire is number one with a bullet. So you only pardon, need four more. Um, I would put the British office 
Okay. Really high up there. Oh, man. Cheers. Uh, Seinfeld. I'm not crazy about Cheers. I like, I like Seinfeld. I like Seinfeld a lot. Um, uh, the Sopranos. Never, never got into it. I love <laughs> 30 Rock. I love 30 Rock. Oh, okay. I got one. I got one. Arrested Development. Okay, yeah, nice. Give it four. Good choice. You've got three comedies and The Wire. Is it, what's another? What's your other? What is another drama you would add to the list? Man, I don't know. Help me. I don't know. <laughs> Help you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, aren't there like some classic uh, Mad Men um, out there? Yeah, like Wood, Justified. Men. I'm just listing. Heidi, why don't you list your five? What are yeah, your five? Yeah, help me, Heidi. Um. So the first handful of seasons of Lost. It derailed towards the end, but that was one of the OGs, and I loved that show. Um, the Office, for sure. Uh, Breaking Bad. I I love everything about that show. Um, Big Love might be my number one. Really? And Dexter. Yes, I loved Big Love. So, I loved that show. I thought it was amazing. That's the everything one about, about the... So, yep. The... It's the one about polygamy. Yeah. About the Mormon Mormon culture. It's good, huh? So it's great. And it was a bit personal. We were at the time that Big Love was on. We were in a small group with a couple um, and the husband's parents had been murdered by a Mormon cult. And it was so he was and one of the characters in Big Love was one of kind of the side creepy cult leader characters named Hollis Green was modeled after this guy's grandfather who had ordered the murder of his own child for trying to leave the cult. Um, so we, we were like personally invested in this like really strange Mormon culture um, that like this fringe polygamous culture and yeah not like so anyway and the Mormon. shows yes yes um and the shows like really accurate like incredibly well researched um so anyway i love we love that show and we've watched it a few times and i actually that, really liked entourage i can't super huh. recommend it for its moral quality but <laughs> we also like that one i don't know if it makes my top five though so your top five were Lost, Breaking Bad, Big Love, The Office, and what was the other one? And Dexter. And Dexter. Dexter, the serial killer yeah. with the heart wow. of gold. That's quite the list right there. That's yeah, quite it is. the list. <laughs> I knew those right off the top of my head, too. I could rattle them off. Like, we're living in the golden age of television. And it was the early 2000s when Scott and I were in our 20s. Like, those were the years. So... Uh, and there's lots of good shows now, but Mad Men is also, I know that's probably on your list, right, David? Oh, yeah. Is that your yeah, number well, one? Yeah, what's on your that's list, David? That's a great David? show. That's a great show. I've probably watched Mad Men from beginning to end four times. No um, way. Um, I don't sleep a lot. Um, so but the other true. ones on my list would be <laughs> um, Justified. Um. Scott loves that show. I watched it. It was good. Scott loves it. Huh. It's like a Eastern Kentucky U.S. Marshal guy who deals with... It's like a crime type story. Man, if you ask me... Well, since we're talking about this right now, like really high on my list is Bosch on Amazon Prime, which is based on the Michael Connelly novels by the, uh, with the detective 
named Harry Bosch. And the That's TV show, show yeah. is on Amazon Prime. And it's one of the best. I mean, it's it's a little bit on the, uh, you know, um, genre genre cliche side of things. But I, I really enjoy that. I don't. It's probably not really on my top five. I watch The Office a ton because when Bethany wants to watch something, usually we just throw on another episode of The Office. Um, I do like The British Office, though, a lot. In fact, I refused to watch the American office for like three seasons because of, um, because I love the British office so much. And I was like, there's no way it's right. as good. It's just different. You know, they're just very different yeah. shows. Mm-hmm. Um, Boy, the American version humor. is so good. It, it became like, it's funny if you started watching three seasons in, that's like when it just starts to hit the sweet spot. Yeah. 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 That's the, great. The wire and arrested development are very high on my list. The wire would be top five. There's a great book actually about um, how that mo- that show was made, like an oral history of it. Um, I bought that book. I saw yeah. it in my used bookstore when I was shopping for a close reads book. And I was like, I got to read this. It's great. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Abrams wrote that book, I think. Um, That's right. Yeah. I've never really watched all of Breaking Bad. I've never was a, you know, a lot of our listeners are like, what about Downton Abbey? Um, I watched a few seasons of that. Um, mm-hmm. Homeland was really good for a while. It did kind of, yeah, it did derail, but that would have been, if it had maintained the quality of the first two seasons, that would definitely be in my top 10. Oh, uh, Fargo for sure. Absolutely. Fargo. Well, that's I never show. saw that. Fargo is incredible. And the next season is about to come up. It's a, it's so it's a retelling. The first season is just a straight retelling of the, the, the movie by the Coen brothers and they helped produce it, although they weren't terribly in, involved. And then after that, what the guy does is he tells different stories about the same place in different decades. So the second season is, takes place in the fifties or the sixties and it's pr- probably my favorite season of television ever made. Wow. Um, and, and it's got uh, Ted Danson plays an aging cop. And then Patrick Wilson plays his son-in-law who, um, whose wife is very sick. And there's all this, you know, this whole crime story that takes on a little bit of a sci-fi thing going on. And then, um, and then the other show that I should mention is Halt and Catch Fire. Have you guys seen that? No, about, I've never seen no. it. It's on my well, list of things to it's, watch. It's one of um, Josh Gibbs and I like to nerd out about this show. It's the first season's not that great. Like you should, you could, you should probably watch it, but you should just watch it quickly and and just assume that you're not like it, that they're ironing things out. But then from seasons two through four or five or whatever they ended up doing, it's absolutely incredible. And it starts in the '80s and it's about the invention of the internet and these guys that like huh. that are competing to create it. And then it ends in like the late '90s or something. So it goes across all these decades of you know, all the different expansions. So there's stuff about like early gaming systems and how they're trying to take what was big business. You know, the internet was just for like big businesses and stuff like that and the government and make it like consumer, consumer uh, friendly. Interesting. So the first season is just kind of melodrama. And then after that, it gets really, really good. So um, those are all. I feel like we're doing a great job discussing Emma right now. yeah. What's the, sorry, sorry, Heidi. What's the name of the show that you were just talking about again, David? I missed it at the beginning. Halt and Catch Fire. Halt and Catch Fire. Great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah, let's, let's talk about Emma. So we, Emma has had many famous adaptations, the most famous of which is probably the 1996 version 
which starred Gwyneth Paltrow. And then of course there was a 90, um, or a 2000, I believe 2009 miniseries that the BBC did and then something more recently as well. So there's been a lot of different adaptions. Honestly, the most famous of all Emma adaptions might actually be the movie Clueless, which came out in what, 94? Um, for many people, that is a perfect, you know, high school rom-com type movie. So, um, by the way, that's, that is high school, right? Uh-huh. Yep. They're in yeah, okay. high school. All right. I was trying to remember if, I would, if that was just my memory playing a trick on me, but this new ad, uh, adaptation. I was in high school when that movie came out. I was so, and so was Tim probably. I Well, Tim might've been in college then. Yeah, I probably but was. It came out, I think my junior year uh, or my, maybe my sophomore, junior year. I guess I graduated in 97. You so you did math, but um, oh yeah. Yeah. Did you Who's the do? star of Clueless? Alicia Silverstone. Yeah, and Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is night is the nightly character, um, and it's Alicia Alicia Silverstone, and she's really that's good. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that's a classic nineties. It's a great movie. Um, mm-hmm. And you know that's probably one of the the nineties movies that is most remembered today, especially within that genre. This version, this twenty twenty version, is directed by Autumn DeWild. She's actually a, a photographer. Uh, that was her initial her initial uh, entryway into the medium, and it stars Anya jo- Anya Taylor Joy, who's one of the up and coming actresses, especially within genre films. She's been in movies like The Witch, which is one of Graham Pittman's and Josh Gibbs' favorite movies. It's like a seventeenth century New England horror story um, by uh, um, oh shoot, I forgot the guy's name. <laughs> Uh, he also did The Lighthouse recently. Um, and then it also stars as nightly Johnny Flynn, who is better known um, up until recently as a very good uh, English folk musician. And then it's got a bunch of other people, including Bill Nighy, Miranda Hart, who are absolutely hilarious. And then Mia Goth, who plays Emma's friend, and I think is one of the most important parts of the movie. So we wanted to talk about mm-hmm. this a little bit for people who are checking it out while they're at home and just a little bonus episode on it. And there are many different things we could talk about with this movie. I, I've got to have, I've got to, you know, throw some full disclosure out there on my part. I'm not terribly familiar with the novel. So I cannot talk about this movie as an adaptation. I can only talk about it as a movie and kind of being within the canon of other Jane Austen adaptations. Tim and Heidi, are you, how familiar are you with the novel, Emma? Familiar. Oh, Heidi's a pro. I'm not a pro. That would be Karen Swallow Pryor, but I am familiar as a fan. Tim, have you read it? In college, but not since. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I, I'm familiar with the story, but I don't, I haven't read it recently and, um, have, you know, I couldn't like parse out some of the changes that they're making. So Heidi, from that perspective, as the person who, you know, knows the novel, I want to start there. How do you think it holds up just as an adaptation? Really good. It's good. It's an easy, and and, and I don't mean this in any way to, uh, uh, like, as detrimental to the quality of the adaptation, but it, it's an easy story to adapt to the film. There's, it's a very, very tightly constructed story, and you can't really get rid of anything and maintain the storyline, if that makes sense. So it's not like you can cut some huge part of it, or it's an easy story to adapt. Yeah, um, yeah. You need all of the piece. I've never seen a bad adaptation 
of Emma. You can't, it, it's kind of like a, a, as a translation, you know, if you can make it through all of the Iliad and the Odyssey and translate the entire thing, it's worth celebrating. This is kind of like that. It's just one of those stories that flows really naturally. It's pretty easy to adapt. Um, you can't, you, you, everything's necessary. And so you, if you want the story to work, you just have to adapt it in a straightforward way, which speaks to Jane Austen as a craftsman. Um, this is, I think her, it's my, it's one of my least favorite novels, but of hers, but it's probably the best crafted one. It's the last one she published and it's really, really like the story is extremely well-crafted. So, so as an adaptation, it's good. I liked all the little things they did to, you know, refer back to the text, like even the way bringing in the, the, the opening line about how Emma was handsome, clever, and rich, you know, doing some things like that, that kind of bring it into the story, make it part of it. That was, that was cleverly done. Tim, what was your favorite part of this movie? I mean, like you say you were watching all of it. it. You say you loved it. All of it. I loved it. I, lo- I think I struggled to get into it for the first 10 minutes, maybe because I was like thinking mm-hmm. about something else. Did you have a hard time with it also for the first 10 minutes, Heidi? Uh, it, I kept thinking for the first 10 minutes, I kept thinking, if you have read the book, this all makes sense. But if you haven't read the book, it's really hard oh, to get into. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was having trouble tracking. I was like, who's the blonde guy? Okay, I know who Emma is. Okay, who is Mrs. Smith? Why, like, who is she? So I was having trouble tracking everyone but Emma and her father. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then once I started kind of getting familiar with everybody else, then I started, like, I just really dropped into the movie. I, I seriously can't think of anything about the movie I didn't like. The... The last two movies that I watched, Little Women and this movie, the costuming and the sets were so like breathtaking. Oh my goodness! The fact that I I usually don't notice those things as much. The fact that I noticed those things, even still, I noticed those things despite the exemplary acting and the exemplary direction and the exemplary camera work was a testament to how good that costuming was. Um, I, I laughed so much. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I laughed so much at, is Bill Nighy? Uh Her father, the actor who plays her father. Um, I thought he, he was probably on screen for less than seven minutes. And he just, for me, stole everything that he was in, everything that he was in. He was great. Um, the actress, what's that? Innocence. Oh, innocence. <laughs> innocence. And when he, when he walked part, it, go ahead. Well, sorry, Tim. Is that is that part in the book, Heidi? That he makes a joke about the way the guy says the word innocence. I don't remember, but I I really doubt it. But I I have it. Yeah, I don't remember that. That that's where I like when you can pull something like that off in an adaptation. Like no one, like everybody forgives you for for departing. I mean, obviously you yeah, can't go yeah, yeah, right. on you. Yes. Right. Go ahead, Tim. Go on. Go on. His his face looks so severe. He looks like a gargoyle <laughs> representation of like a 16th century reformer. You know what I mean? I mean, just like a bloodless teetotaler. And he can be so funny. I think part of it is because his visage is so stern. 
that anything that he says that has a modicum of humor is just hilarious because it, it's like it's offset by his face, his yeah. stern, aggressively stern face. I mean, his. Well, anyway, I'll stop going on about Bill Nike's face. Um, <laughs> I love the woman who played Mrs. Smith. I just thought that's yeah. a hard, yeah. hard role to play. And I thought yeah, every she, time I she's know, on screen, she's funny. She's great. She's great. Who are you talking about, Mrs. Smith? Miranda. Who are Hart. you talking about? No, oh, I was thinking about. Who is that? Oh, hold on. I'm thinking about Emma's best friend. Oh, you're talking about Miss Bate. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Miss Smith. Yes, got it. Okay. Miss Smith, not Mrs. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry. I, yeah. And I'm not meaning to correct you. I was just not sure exactly. No, who you thank meant. you. So that yeah, that's sense. what I meant. Yeah, I mean, I've read some people saying that she's the reason the movie works because you have to really care what happens to her. Yeah. And because uh-huh. otherwise, you know, Emma seems, you know, the degree to which you um, are annoyed with Emma depends so much on whether you like that character. Yeah. Um, and so her ability to be sort of silly and goofy and, and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, likable, but also come across as a little bit dumb all at the same time. Like uh-huh. that's a a hard line to kind of pull off, but it makes her a really crucial character. Because if she's too dumb, then you're just annoyed with her. But if she's uh-huh. you know, and, but she she has to be you know she has she's like the the pathos core of the movie in a lot of ways. She for yeah. me, if she was too pitiful kind of because of her social position is below Emma's and she's a little bit, if she played with a hint of desperation, then I think her role would be greatly diminished, but she somehow establishes that she is kind of dependent upon Emma. And yet she's, Mm -hmm. she's such a, what is the right word? She's she's such an authentic an character. Ingenue. Yeah, she's an ingenue. And she's so genuine about everything that she thinks and feels that you don't get this kind of like overly seesawed power position with Emma carrying all the power, even though I think like socially she does. And 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 Miss Smith, Miss Smith never becomes pitiful. But she'd still, at the same time, she kind of earns our pity. Like, we want her to be well off, please. We want her to be well off. I thought she was terrific. I might say also, like, the movie is just really contingent upon her, and that actress just hit it. Mia Goth is a really interesting actress. She's been in a lot of, um, she plays, like, a lot of really interesting roles. She was actually married to um, Shia LaBeouf for a while. She, wait, she is, who is her character that's miss smith miss smith okay harriet smith yeah i and i i i really think that it's you know there's so many moments where you are supposed to really dislike emma i mean that's why jane austen said she was going to write a character who only she liked um uh-huh. you know you're really supposed to dislike her so that's a hard thing to pull off in the story so you have to have all these other characters that will that will carry the the audience through the movie and do you think that the um that johnny flynn as mr knightley did a good job with that 
how, how did how, how, how did you feel about about Johnny Flynn as Knightley? Because Knightley is obviously like a this is one of the characters that's really important to. He's the best best Knightley I've ever seen. I loved him as Knightley. I I have never liked a film adaptation of Knightley because everyone is too fatherly, too self contained, like and he had like some ardor and some passion and he was you know because in the in the novel Knightley is 15 years older than Emma oh wow and um, she's like and has or something right yeah she's almost 21 and he's 35 and he is so I loved him as Knightley I thought I thought everybody was really, really well cast. And I've never seen a um, a Mr. Woodhouse who is as good either. And because Mr. Woodhouse is usually played as like a gluttonous kind of fat man. And because um, he's obsessed with his food. But in this adaptation, they made him more obsessed with his health. And they did that thing with the screens when the servants were always bringing oh, in the so screens. Fun. And I loved that. <laughs> They're like it was perfect. Two dogs following him around. <laughs> Yes. And it was, and it like, they built it up throughout the whole movie. And then in the end, that was the thing that made them able to kiss for the first time. I loved it. Um, I thought that was great. It was one, to your point, David, that was one of those subtle touches that like absolutely was masterfully done, but usually he's played more as a glutton on the screen and the focus on the food is, is highlighted. But I really liked how in this one, it was the health thing. So I thought that was great, but nightly was perfect and i i have to say as an adaptation it probably wasn't perfect but i think it's an example of what of how you can change a book to make a better movie in a good way um because in the book he really is like a very regency kind of rules following hero he's a little bit pompous like he's very self-contained he seems a lot older than emma in the book Hmm. and this one I thought he was romantic. I thought he had some passion, some zeal, some ardor, some emotion that showed on his face. Like I, I really liked him. I was like, Oh, I could fall in love with that guy, but not the guy in the book. So yeah. Uh, Heidi, I have another question about the adaptation. Um, Is it, so in the movie, Emma and Mr. Knightley don't really fall in love until this dance scene. Is that also the way that it is in the book? Or is it more of kind of like a slow burn from the beginning at the book? Do you remember? Yeah. So in it's not entirely clear what Knightley feels about Emma. It's very clear that Emma does not see him as a lover um, and until she's kind of worked Frank Churchill out of her system. Because that, and that wasn't played up to much in this adaptation, but I thought it worked fine. Um, but yeah, in the novel, she's things you have to work with. Yeah. Yes. Well, and the central relationship of the movie in this, in this movie was Harriet and Emma and their friendship. Right. Yep. And that's not, it's, that is an aspect of the novel, but not the central aspect of the novel, but I thought it worked really well. And I, I think as I've, you know, grown as a reader and I've learned that sometimes to make a good movie, you really have to change the novel. What works in a novel doesn't work the same way in a movie. And I thought Amen, that they sister. did that perfectly. 
they did that perfectly in this. Like they chose to make the friendship between the women, the central relationship of this movie. And I thought it worked beautifully. I loved it. Even to the proposal, because David asked about our our favorite thing about the movie and mine by far, by far, like hands down a million miles ahead of everything else was, was Emma's bloody nose during the proposal. I was I so was surprised by that. Amazing. Hold on, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Let's, <laughs> okay. Let's. I know. But that goes to the fact that it changes the proposal. That's not the way the proposal goes in the book. The proposal is the proposal because Knightley and Emma is the central relationship of the book. And and the changes that happen in that relationship. But because of the friendship thing that Harriet and Emma are the are the central relationship they changed the proposal and that was perfect i loved it there were tim mentioned that there is this uh is the dance scene and that that's the scene where they they sort of Mm -hmm. as you put up tim they seem to be falling fall in love in that moment and i was thinking a lot about how you know it's like they see each other in a new way for the first time and uh in movies you have to create images that represent meaning or represent things that are happening in a way that a novel can spend more time breaking out. And so, you know, that's, that's why so many people say things like, well, in movies, it seems like they didn't, they fell in love really fast, you know? (laughs) And to Heidi's point, it's not really about them falling in love so much as it is about, you know, Emma learning things about herself and all that. And there's something very modern about the way they, like, this is a very modern retelling. It's a, Mm -hmm. you know, even more so than the little women, I think. Um, there's a, there's a, oh, modern, really? there, there's a modern energy about it. I think, have you guys seen, uh, Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette? No, no. Oh, okay. That you guys Is it good? Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. That's another one of Josh. Sorry, Gibbs's I watch movies. shows, not movies. <clears throat> so it's, um, Kirsten Dunst plays Marie Antoinette and it's a, it's a very like uh, anachronistic movie in a lot of ways. But so the color palette in this movie is one of the things that I most enjoyed about it. It's very painterly, but also, mm-hmm. but in a very modern way, there's like all these pastels and like there's, there's an, the consistency of the, of the, the um, staging, everything from the costumes to, well, the actual stages that they rode with their horses <laughs> to the buildings, to, um, the set decoration, the art direction, all those things were so, so, um, like if, if it came from, uh, someone's, you know, like a hipster Pinterest board, uh, of Easter springtime colors, like <laughs> you know, that's what it, that's what it feels that's like. Perfect not description, that, David. Not in a way that's like, uh, you know, annoying, you know, it's, it's, uh, the pastel, like it's, they're pastel type colors, but they're very, uh, you know, they're um, like because of the way it's all framed up and the way it's shot, it's very painterly as opposed to being like mm-hmm. sort of kitschy. If that makes sense. So that's yes. it. Then that, that it reminds that whole color palette, that whole scheme, the way it uses anachronistic music and the way um, the characters act a little bit, you know, more modern than they would have in, in the novel. All that is very much in line with uh, Marie Antoinette, the Sofia Coppola movie. I'm not the first person like mm-hmm. to say that, that. That As soon as I saw the trailer, I said to Graham, well, that looks like Marie Antoinette. And then that's showed up in a lot of different reviews that it, that it huh. seems like that was a clear influence on it. So if you like this movie, you'll probably like Marie Antoinette. Um, do, do, you, um, do you have a particular scene... Tim, that you most liked. Heidi talked about the bloody nose, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But is there a, some? Is there a moment that for you was like the one you found yourself thinking about after it was over? 
I, the scene where Emma insults, is it Mrs. Weston? Miss Bates? Miss Bates. Miss Bates, excuse me. When they're on the picnic. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Box, it was yeah. so yeah. heartbreakingly good. It was so mm-hmm. heartbreakingly good. And it's funny because I had a lot of sympathy with Emma. Like I knew she was so full of herself for the first half of the movie. Um, you know, she just pretends to be the puppet master over everybody's lives and, you know, these little slights and she uses her prestige, you know, she, she's Emma. And I, but somehow I found it tolerable until she insulted Mrs. Bates and Miss Bates is so long suffering and hardly tries to not even take it as an insult. Oh, it was just so good. It hurt so bad. Right. I thought she that was a great scene. Her face right away, though she's really yes, like, yes. I mean, there's just so much. If you actually wrote the dialogue on a piece of paper, I suspect that the dialogue would be a page and a half. But you get volumes in what happens, other than what the characters are saying. Volumes of you know what Mrs. Bates is feeling and how everybody on that blanket is instantly sort of um, they're, they're charged with something the moment that, that Emma insults her. But yeah, anyway, I just thought it was a masterful scene. Mm. The, the Miss Bates stuff, Bethany, when we were watching it, every time she came on the screen, she was like, oh, I can't wait to watch another Miss Bates scene. <laughs> Miranda Hart played mm-hmm. it so perfectly. Probably my favorite scene with her is where they are in, uh, Emma goes to visit her and Jane Fairfax and they're sitting in their little apartment and and, and uh, Miss Fairfax is like answering every question, or, uh, Miss Bates is answering every question for Jane Fairfax and then she keeps talking and talking and then all of a sudden they just kind of sit there quietly and she goes, this nice, like that whole. <laughs> um, and then um, the stuff with um, what is his name that Harriet ends up marrying? I'm drawing a blank now. Uh, Mr. Martin. Mr. Martin, yeah. They, they like the expressionless, but completely, ex, you know, full of expression way he just looks at the, looks at her. <laughs> And they, and they yeah. get these weird, like, wide shots where it's just his face. Um, or, mm-hmm. like, it's, it'll be a wide shot, and then it'll go, it'll then crop to his face, cut to his face. And he's just, like, looking like a puppy dog. Yeah. <laughs> that stuff is so, is, is hilarious. Like, he, I think a lot of the humor comes in the way it sort of, like, uh, takes seriously people's real misery, you know, in a humorous mm-hmm. way. Yes. Like, it doesn't diminish the misery, but it also laughs at it at the same time. And I think that's one of the reasons the movie works because it, the, that it pulls that trick off is impressive. Agreed. That's a very I, good way of putting it. I loved him, by the way. I loved him. He, again, he's another one of these characters. He had probably two lines in the whole movie. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he hardly had any lines. And every time he showed up, I just felt so, oh, I felt for him so much, the poor guy. And he did, he had this, he's such a, like this kind of, a, a face that was a mix of a cherub and a puppy dog. And I believed both sides of him. Oh, I just, I thought he was great. Sorry, Heidi. 
What scene did you like, Heidi? Heidi, Heidi already mentioned it. Um, that was one. <laughs> oh man, I just loved that. I thought it was awesome. I just thought about it all night afterwards. It was so good. Why? But oh. I agree about yeah. Well, I think this is such an actor's movie, and that's what that's why Jane Austen adaptations keep being remade. Is they're delightful, and I mean, we've talked a lot about um, why Jane Austen continues to be popular in the modern world, considering how different the society was. I think there's lots of reasons for that, but you keep make they keep making movies of it because. On the one hand, what David said, everything's so human. And that's what Scott said afterwards. Like we turned the movie off and he's like, can we watch Talladega Nights now? (laughs) And then um, he said, it's just, it's so many, I think he said like, there's just so many feelings on that screen, but nobody's allowed to show them. Oh my gosh. And that's exactly Like, that's what's so powerful. It's like, on the one hand, it's so human and there's the same kind of situations. Who's dating who and who likes who and who's going to marry who and who's hurting someone's feelings and who's sending piano fortes to some random person. Like, that's... (laughs) But on the other hand, it's disguised. It's the mystery and the manners, as Flannery O'Connor says. And I think a film adaptation of Jane Austen captures that so well, because there's so many things in a novel that are left to the imagination. You can't see the look on Emma's face when Harriet confides in her that she has feelings for Knightley, and Emma knows, I did that. Mm -hmm. And this is now the man I love. Yeah. Yeah. What do I do about that? And there's like you can see it on her face in a movie but you have to imagine it when you're reading and which is why i think you need the novels read the novels please read the novels but i like watching the movies because there's there's such a challenge it seems i'm not an actress tim i know you are an actor like there's there's got to be such a challenge in that how do i maintain the regency manners while still showing the mystery and the way I'm yeah. interacting in this scene. And the Box Hill scene to me is that that's the, the picnic when she insults Miss Bates. Mm. It's the turning point of the book and every movie. And it's it's her it's Emma's opportunity to repent that she takes, uh, which actually makes her lovable at the end. And, and then, but it's it is an actor's scene. Everything is hidden. Everything to your point. Like you read the script and it's just a script. You have to, as an actor, you have to make that work. Yeah. Well, and that's why they say that movies are, you know, movie acting is, is face acting. Like great, great screen actors are people not who line readings is one thing. Like the way you read the line is one thing, but it's how you, well, it's the, it's the famous line acting is reacting. Right. So it's, being able to make your face present meaning is what makes great movie actors. You know, it's Kate Winslet is great at that. That's one of the reasons why she's been in, you know, she was in Sense and Sensibility. And, you know, there's these, some of these same actors that keep going back to some of these same sorts of movies, I think, because they're, they're, they're the way they are able to use their faces to create meaning is suits a certain genre, so to speak. Um, well, have this, you seen what, the Gwyneth Paltrow version of it? I'm sorry, I have just one more thing to yeah, say. Yeah, but it's been a the long Gwyneth time. Gwyneth Paltrow version of that scene. So when Knightley rebukes Emma and Gwyneth plays her, I thought that was 
just iconic. So there's this scene in the Gwyneth Paltrow movie when, when Knightley says that was badly done, Emma, about the way she treated Miss Bates. And then Emma, in this version, the one we're talking about, she breaks down and cries. And I thought that was good. But Gwyneth Paltrow plays that, I think, the best I've ever seen. I've seen several versions of Emma what on she screen. Do? And she her face just crumples. Mm. Like, she, it's so beautiful. This I'm... It's she doesn't break down and hide her face and cry the way this actress did, which she did a really good job in that scene. It was a it's a great scene. It's the turning point of the movie. It's it shows the relationship between these two people and it shows Emma's repentance and Knightley's like assiduous care for Emma. Like he's trying to help her and he's mad at mm-hmm. her. And it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful scene. However, it's in every adaptation I've ever seen. But when Gwyneth plays it, her face just like crumples like a wilted flower and you can, and her shoulders slump and she Mm. plays it very differently, but it's just as repentant. And I loved that. That's my favorite version of that scene I've ever seen. But there is just something about that moment for Emma when that, that is, she's repenting and it makes her lovable again, instead of just being kind of a B word. (laughs) <laughs> a bother for a lot of the story. She is a bother. Yeah. That's right. There's something about Jane Austen, and I think the director helped establish this. That when I was watching the movie last night, it felt like I watched it with the same sort of attentive care as I watched a murder mystery. You know, like in a, when you're watching a murder mystery. Every little gesture, every clue has the potential to mean something and to unravel everything. And I found myself halfway through this movie sort of knowing who needed to be together as couples, but not being really sure. So I'm watching Emma's face for every small gesture, mm-hmm. look, bat of the eyes to see, okay, does she? Does she like Knightley? It doesn't seem like she likes Knightley, but boy, that would be such a great match. You know, so there's some way in which she, Jane Austen and the director, managed to keep the characters both opaque but known at the same time. And what a balancing act that is Mm. to have both of those things going on and to not tip too far in one direction or the other. Well, so we've kind of saved this until now. We've talked about some of the different performances, but let's talk about Anya Taylor-Joy as Emma. Where do you think, Heidi, where do you think she ranks on the, you know, I think uh, Alicia Silverstone, Gwyneth Paltrow, Paltrow, who is the one on the miniseries? Uh, Romola Garay, I think, um, Mm -hmm. was was one. Where do you rank Anya Taylor-Joy in terms of her uh, as, as as Emma? She's probably, I'll say I liked Gwyneth Paltrow better, but that might be a flaw because Emma's not supposed to be likable. And I I like how, how this, how Anya Taylor, I like how she was unflinchingly, she she wasn't likable. Yes. Like through, she was arrogant. She was. Like she was all the things that she repents of that in that sweet scene when she's sitting in the 
in the window seat and her dad walks by and she's saying all the ways that she failed. You saw that in this movie. I think what has happened in a lot of adaptations of Emma is that there's such an emphasis at the beginning of the movie to make her still likable, even though you're supposed to notice, to make her both things, right? You don't want to lose your audience. So you don't want to make her too mean at the beginning of the novel, or excuse me, at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Um, and Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow did that really well. She maintains likability, even though she is arrogant and oversteps and is snotty and overreaching and all those things. She's both. And so in one way, I think she maybe played it better, but I think this one does a much better job of, of, um, making, of, of showing the trajectory of her growth, which is what Austin wanted to do with her. Yeah. I think that you have, she has to have a, uh, there has to be a sense of why other people are sort of drawn to her and then why they get hurt mm-hmm. when she acts the way she does. I think, I do think that the energy of this movie, like the, the, the sort of core energy to it and the colors and the way it's shot and the way the camera moves in the way that red dialogue is, the lines are red, you know, there's a pace to it and energy to it that is con- sort of consistent with Emma herself as a character. Um, almost like an objective correlative for that. And I think that that really helps you know, keep give the movie enough forward motion that when she's being rotten, you can latch onto the other characters and not feel and like feel like you still want to be around all of them. Like that's you know, right? Harriet Smith and and Mr. Knightley and so forth, and her father. Like those characters are all so important. But then also you've got all these other characters like um, the the minister, who's just like that that guy played that, that absolutely hilariously. Like it's almost cartoonish, oh, yeah, but in a way that works really well. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's do something here. We, we don't need to spend too much time on this. We just want to kind of touch on this a little bit for people. But I listen to this podcast called The Rewatchables and they do this. They do all these different categories and we're not going to cover all of them. But I do want to do one uh, category that they do um, called Who Won the Movie? So who do you think... Who, who do you think kind of like stole the show the most? If you, you know, who is at the peak of their powers? Who, who are you going to remember the most? Um, and it could be the director. It could be the screenwriter. It could be what the set director or it could be an actor or whatever. But, but for you, when you think of this version of Emma, what's going to stand out to you? Heidi, I'll ask you that first, having probably most recently seen other versions. Oh man. I, I think nightly for me, but I hope somebody says Mr. Woodhouse. <laughs> Tim, what do I for you? For me, it's the director. I, I just directing is such a complicated and multifarious art form to master. And you can see evidence of it that there are great actors that are that are bad, that are like really bad on the screen. And I am convinced that 99% of the time it's because of the director. It has nothing. It's not like suddenly Robert De Niro forgot how to act or that he couldn't do something with these lines that he was given. The director did not put him in a position to succeed. So I just, I think our director, she put everyone in a position to succeed and everybody that stepped on the stage. I mean, the foot servants were great in this movie. Um, And Mr. Woodhouse is, if I had to pick an actor, it's Emma's father. Because again, he was not on screen very much. He was so brilliant. So anyway, but if I, I, I would still choose 
the director, I just thought she, everything that she put her hand to, she succeeded with. I think for me, what I'm going to remember the most is the style of the movie. Um, mm. And and in part of that, like, um, I, I actually think, I, I really liked Anya Taylor-Joy. And she's got this look about her, mm-hmm. which is unique and so expressive. And I think she was able to play, like, she was able to play the, the the snooty, haughty, arrogant version of that character in a way that's really memorable, but also play the sort of, you know, repentant version too. I don't know that the energy she brought to the to that bit at the end was quite as mm-hmm. well suited to it as she was in the first half. Like I think she played that. She was so good um, at playing the um, up up through the bloody nose she's incredible and then after that i gotta rewatch it again um uh but but i think combined her combined with the style i think is what i'm gonna remember about the movie like i'm gonna remember the way it was shot and the way it looks and the way it, the way it feels all like all that sort of thing and that's what's gonna probably make me want to watch it again i do really like um nightly i, I did like his performance though so me too. Um, he's right, well, just like my least favorite Austin hero. And so to see him played with some, like, I don't know. And, and it's probably because I'm a modern woman more than I'd like to be. So I like a guy with some fire. <laughs> <laughs> I like that he, the actor was not beautiful. I mean, he, I'm sure he was a really good looking man, but he was, there was something, um, he didn't have like the perfect symmetry of form of, I'm sorry, who is the other love interest? The guy who ends up being a cad. Um, Churchill. Yeah. He doesn't have this sort of like symmetry that Frank Churchill has. He's a little bit shorter than Frank Churchill. And there's something about his face that he, he just looks more weathered. He's seen a lot more life. Yeah. A little um, more rugged. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, but he's great. He's great. I, you all should listen to his music, by the way. Johnny Flynn has a, a great, a great album called Alarum from like ten years ago or something like that. He's really good. Huh. But um, it's funny because as we were watching it, I had watched the first half of the movie um, two nights ago, and then Bethany watched the first half last night while I was on a call, and we finished the last half of it together. And so I came in and we sort of watched it together, and then she said something like, "She's he's not going to." end up with Emma. I would be so mad if he ends up with Emma because she doesn't deserve him. So I was like, that, I guess that's, I guess that's a good sign that you're, she hadn't read the book. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. 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 That you, you know, that that character is doing what you want and, and you know, and that she's just unlikable enough. So I, although I didn't ask her if she then ended up being disappointed, I'll have to ask her if she ended up being disappointed. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to know I what she did, thought. Like, did her perspective on Emma change? Um, but you in the book, you don't really know until Box Hill with Fl- with Frank Churchill. You're kind of rooting for him, which is like interesting because that goes that speaks to the manners. You don't really know till the Box Hill scene that he is shallow because he does everything right. Like his manners are perfect. Yeah, yeah. So you don't you don't see his like in this one. I feel like they overplayed the Frank Churchill being a jerk the whole time, but that's okay. Like it worked for the movie because it wasn't the main point of the movie. Yeah, It was kind of a side point. I think here they're trying to make him seem mysterious and like there's a legend about him. And really what Emma likes is that he's mysterious and has a legend about him. You know, that he's this sort right. of figure that is worth 
you know, being interested in like that mm-hmm. he's, he's worthy of her because he's rich and, you know, everybody likes him and stuff like that. And so he's kind of worth pursuing for her. Um, right. so to me that in that way, that actually kind of worked because when he gets there, you're like, what's the big deal? Like, yeah, he's handsome, but he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> you know so then you kind of realize it's kind of like along with emma you start realizing maybe my perspective on that wasn't quite as right as it should have been so right one more thing about the box hill scene yeah i i thought one of the things that delighted me was that i could not tell if emma's insult was kind of coming from herself or whether it was because she was momentarily under the influence of frank churchill And I think that ambiguity is perfect because we don't want her to be with Frank Churchill. We know that he's a malign influence and to have her insult kind of prompted maybe by herself and maybe by her desire to impress him in some way. That's the right note. That is the right note. Right. The one, the one problem with that for this adaptation is that as my kids because jack jack said to me why is knightley so like why does he have so much angst about emma and and it's it's because knightley thinks emma's in love with frank and so he's trying to do the honorable thing by staying away from oh right but but he's but he loves her so much that he can't help but speak you know like he comes to the tree, the cops of trees to comfort her because Frank is marrying or, um, Jane Fairfax. And so he's trying to do the honorable thing by like being there for her as a friend. And she has to explain to him, I'm not in love with Frank, but because they underplayed that dynamic in the movie, there was a couple of Knightley's choices I felt like my kids were were like lost on. Well, they were like, why is he doing that? I think that what they're going for, and this is where it's a little bit more modern. I think what they're going for is they're trying to make it seem like they have been friends, like that they've been kind of like friends for a long time, like since they were younger or something like that. And so the, that, that's how right. I read it at the beginning of the movie, that they're friends. And so then they don't even, like, she doesn't even, she views him as a friend who you wouldn't ever be, have a romance with, which probably wouldn't have happened at the time the way it would now. Right. And so, yeah, no, that's, I think that's where they, okay. and that they did played in that, in that, in that way for that reason. So that, so, that so it, at the beginning, hmm. at the beginning of the book, why is Mr. Knightley over at Emma's house so frequently? Is that explained? Cause I don't think they give any explanation for it at the beginning of the movie. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think that it's because they're just friends. Like I think he's friends with the family and what the movie is showing is that increasingly. No, he, I'm asking about the book, David. I'm asking about the book. No, that's true. He's right. Like there's, he's over there because he's, he's 35 and Mr. Woodhouse is in his fifties and they are equal in rank. And so you just hang out with each other in the country. I see. And okay. so he's always over. And then he has this kind of bantering relationship with his friend's daughter. Okay. I see. Okay. So it is, it's like, it, there's a, like a touch more explanation in the book, but yeah. not a whole lot but more than the movie. But it's social convenience, which is a whole other level of the of the story that we didn't even go into yeah. on this podcast. All of the social conventions and all that, you know, the satire of the society and all that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, if we if we um, do the book, we can <laughs> we can talk about all that more because um, mm-hmm. we'll have multiple episodes to do so. All right. Well, let's let's wrap this up. What are some final thoughts on this movie? Uh, Tim, out of five stars, how many stars are you giving it? 
You can do five stars. stars. I'm giving five stars. I'm going the the whole way. I am. And I'm stingy, but I'm giving this five. Heidi. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think there was (laughs) as a movie, it was pretty flawless. So yeah, five, I think it was excellent. Everything you're saying about the colors and how the sets like reflected the, uh, (laughs) what am I trying? Hold on. Let me think how to put this into words. The sets did the work and the costuming did the work of the explanation of the society. Yeah. Oh, well said. Yeah. Yeah. So like, and that, yes. So you didn't have to have a character explaining, you know, and the, and the servants, the placement of the servants, servants almost as props. And you accidentally catch every once in a while that they're making faces in the background that express their like opinions when, of what's going on. When they start, when Emma and Knightley kiss and then the, um, behind the screen or whatever. And then the two servants yeah. are like, uh, and then they turn around. Yeah. Yes. So those, all of those things, flawless, like masterpiece level cinematography so and the story was extremely well done everyone was well cast yeah so I'd, I'd say i'd say five i have a couple of tiny tiny little itty bitty quibbles like i said about the frank churchill dynamic that, that, that those kinds of things that i think could have but uh so maybe 4.75 <laughs> i said you could do halves i didn't say anything about quarters yeah <laughs> all right fine four and a half how about you david uh, i reserve a five star for like the greatest movies, like The Godfather, is five stars. So I'll give it four. All right, all right. I'm like, how many five stars do you have? Um, I've probably given like fifteen movies five stars. Oh wow, you might be a little stingier than me. I, so I have a Letterboxd account. You guys know what Letterboxd is? Yes. No. Or like, it's kind of like the, the good the Goodreads version for movies. Um, oh, okay. A lot of film critics. You can write reviews in there and keep lists and you know do all kinds of stuff. So I go through there every now and then, and I um, will just like go through and read a lot of the reviews and uh, go back and rate movies and stuff like that. And I was looking the other day, and I think I've rated like ten movies on there as five stars. And then there's probably a couple other ones that I've you know like I, I would never rate a movie five stars the year it came out. So that's my rule. Like if I if I like something and I'm like this this is going to be a movie that I'm going to love forever. I'm pretty sure of it. Then I'll give it four and a half stars. And then maybe later, like five years on the road, I'll give it five stars. That's kind of my personal rule. So then I, I think that's a good rule. At the end of the year, I'll go back and I'll look at my, whatever, what I gave four and four and a half stars. I'm like, that's how I'll kind of make my list. Like last year, once upon a time in Hollywood, I watched it three times in the theater. And so like I gave it four and a half stars, but it may become five star movie one day, but they would have to be up there with like the Godfather and, and the apartment and the movies that are like my favorite movies that I'd rewatch anytime, any day. But so this doesn't reach that f- for me, but you never know. I might watch it again and re- rethink that. So I'm giving, I give this one four stars. So you, when you're, so when you're giving stars, mm-hmm. David and Tim, yeah, like you're looking at it within the context of, like all of cinematography. So you're saying in, in, a, in a way you're comparing it to other movies, even then, like, how does this isn't as good as the Godfather? So it can only have four stars as opposed to so putting it within a canon. Like I'm, I was thinking about it just in terms of itself as like an encapsulated. Oh yeah. Artifact. A woodchuck just ran across the road right in front of me. And I'm just sitting here. Stop it. Really? Yeah. 
Wow. Down, hey, down a hill, across the road, up a hill. What do you know about that? How anyway, big continue. is how big is a woodchuck? Cool. Um, this one looks like a large cat size. Okay. Does it waddle when it runs? Yeah, that's what I'm picturing. It does it like kind of not as much as you think. <laughs> Another, just a final question: Could it chuck? How much wood would it chuck? It could chuck wood. Chuck wood. Yeah. Did it? Was it chucking any wood? Yeah. Was it time? chucking anything? Was it a chucker? Um, it was no. It was moving, it was swiftly moving from one place to the other. It looked like it had an, an uh, idea in mind. It had a goal. It uh-huh. may have been that it was going to get something to chuck, but at the time it was on four legs and it was chuck free. It was chuck free. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. carry on with what you were saying. Well, that's my question. Cause I would say the same thing. If I'm looking at it in the context of every film that's ever been made, no, it's not a five, but if I'm looking at it as like an artifact, the thing itself, could it be better? Like, could it, could could it have been better than it was? I don't know. Like so, it seemed pretty perfect. For me, the star system is about, is as much as anything, it's about helping me think about, you know, like I have to think about it in terms of at the end of the year or in a decade, if I want to make, if I want to have a sense of, of what the, the year was like in movies or the decade. Was like oh, the movie, okay. And I have to have a, then I have to have something to go back and look at. So, um, I mean, I'm going to, my ratings will change and stuff like that as I watch things multiple times. Sometimes they'll go down, sometimes they'll go up. But I want to be able to look back at the end of the year and say, you know, this was the tier that this that this movie was in. And so I try to think about it in terms of, you know, if mm-hmm. I if I was looking at the decade and I was looking at the best movies of the decade and I saw that this was five stars and then I saw that like, okay, so say since 2000, I'm making a list of the first 20 years and my five-star movies might be There Will Be Blood, Zodiac, um, something like uh, uh, No Country for Old Men, say some, something like that. If I look back and I'm like, okay, my top five movies are all five stars, and Emma has five stars too, is it gonna? Am I gonna be like, no, that movie doesn't doesn't live up to those? It doesn't belong on that list. So I'm kind of conscious of that, but I'm not necessarily saying, well, this isn't The Godfather, so it doesn't, it it doesn't. That's not the rate. He doesn't give five stars. Measure up or whatever. But I am okay. thinking in terms of other movies. Like that's the only way I can come up with to to, to kind of judge it. I mean, that's I, if I was writing a review of the movie, I would not be thinking about it in quite that way. I'd be wanting to look at the movie in and of itself. I have several other follow up questions that will be discussed at a different time because we don't have all day. So okay. Tim, how do you do your list? And then we can go. I think I just changed the way that I do my list to the way that you do your list. I think it's, you know what I mean? Like there's something about you have to have criteria to assess by and the best criteria is like other movies. Um, but you also have to kind of grade on the evolution of the genre. Yeah. Movies have, they've, they've adapted so I just think the ability to make movies now, not just on a technical level, but across the board, they've advanced so much from whatever, 1960, that if we graded a 1960 movie by the technological you know, prowess of today, well, it's just not apples to apples. So you have to kind right. of grade it according to its own era. So I really like the way that you... Right. Like my two favorite movie. movies of all time were made before 1970. So they're probably you know, like 
I'm not, I'm, they're going to be five stars, but they're, but I'm not thinking about them quite the same way that I am say something that was made in 2017. Yeah. I right. Or like, you know, the acting is the, the way the style of acting is different. The technology is different. So I usually, you know, I'll usually like try not to be too, you know, <laughs> too, um, judgmental about things that just work because things evolve and because tastes change, you know, but that, so like the apartment, but it was the first of something. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, that's exactly. I mean, like right. if you watch a movie like the apartment, which might be my favorite movie ever, it's a Billy Wilder movie from 1959 or maybe it came out in 1960. So technically, but there's a character played it by Fred McMurray who plays this like insurance company. He's like the big boss of the company. And Whereas the most of the actors in the movie, you can, you can see like the performance is kind of holding up now. His is a very sort of late fifties archetypal performance, and it's it's kind of stylized in a way that nowadays people would be like, "Well, that's annoying." But I can you can look mm-hmm. past that because the rest of the movie is basically flawless. Um, and then in the same way, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is an incredible movie, but it's super anachronistic. That's one of those movies where. You know, it, you can't judge it just based on how you judge other Western movies because it kind of is subverting everything we know about Westerns and it's much yeah. more modern. So it kind of does the inverse of that performance in the apartment. So you have to kind of just like, in some ways you have to compare it to other movies, but then in other ways you have to detach from the, tr- the canon because movies yeah. are always, they're always playing with the nature of filmmaking itself, which is also true of novels as well. Well, those were my follow-up questions. What do you do if a movie that got five stars and its time isn't now up to quality Mm. that we would make it in, right? It has to remain five stars because, you know, it's The Godfather or it's The Apartment. But is that, how should we then translate that into our rating system, our personal rating systems is what I'm to you, which seems like something you've really thought about. <laughs> yeah. I would, that, I would take issue with the idea that like the Godfather or the apartment don't live up to modern standards. Well, I guess that's less of my point than to your, to your point about his character. You're right. If you're just watching it, he has that like twang in his voice. That's really annoying to moderns. But at the time it was just how they thought about big business people. <laughs> I love that movie, right. which you introduced me to that movie. And I've watched it like 50 times. And it's so good every single time I watch it. Um, and by the way, I've also learned how to make a daiquiri because of that movie, a real daiquiri. <laughs> um, I didn't know that daiquiris were good. Um, so yeah, here's here's what I would say. I actually think about this all the time. I was just watching a movie recently called The Killers, which is an early. Um, um, who made 2001: Space Odyssey? Why am I drawing a blank on this? Um, Kubrick. Kubrick. And it's an early Kubrick movie. Yeah. It's a great crime movie. But the way everyone talks and the way they interact with each other, especially the romantic pairings, um, it's um, very, well, it's it's very kind of like highly stylized and like nobody even then actually talked that way. So Get over here, so, doll. Like, Stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't like it's a little bit annoying, but you have to get into the world of that particular movie. And it's, to me, it's the same thing as like you read a Jane Austen novel or you read crime and punishment and they're the way they talk is it's different. Like I read Shakespeare and I'm not like, this isn't from my time. So I judge it differently. Um, I, you know, I'm less concerned about that kind of thing than, than I am like, you know, 
um, given the elements of movie making, how how much in control of those elements were the filmmakers? And then, and how much did they create something cohesive out of that? So, like, the, even if in 1948, when they made the Killers, whatever year it was, I think it was somewhere in the late 40s, early 50s, when they made the Killers, there was a certain cinematic language that was going on, like the way they set up a camera, the way they shot things, and then did they were they masters of that language at the time? And then were they also trying to do? Were they doing something to help move it forward? Like those are the things that I'm looking for. Um, if you watch some of those movies that haven't really lasted, you'll watch it and you'll be like, well, that's just sort of rote, right? Like they just set the camera up and they didn't do anything interesting. They weren't trying to push anything forward. They weren't really masters. They were just capturing images. You know, they were just getting coverage. There's a, such a big difference between getting coverage and creating meaning through images. And, if, and just because the way they create meaning through images has changed doesn't mean that it wasn't meaningful then in a way that is still meaningful now, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I guess my question, and I do realize, I don't know if any of this is going to make it onto the boom into the podcast recording. I believe it. People can put it off if they want to. So, so let's look at like mob movies, like with Godfather. Godfather is a flawless movie. That's it's it's a remarkable movie. It's a masterpiece. But one of the reasons that it is is because it's an OG. It's one of the first. There have been other mob movies that were made later that tried to imitate it. Like I would say something like The Departed is, I mean, it's so good. It's another masterpiece. Mm-hmm. What if The Departed was first? What if it was made in 1980, whatever, when The Godfather was? You guys probably know that off the top of your heads. I don't. So would that then be a five and The Godfather would be a, a four? Uh, you're asking an illogical question in my opinion <laughs> because I don't know if I am though because if you're looking not, at it maybe it so have which... been first though because the language that the departed is using was created by the godfather and actually it wasn't created by the godfather it was created by movies earlier than that from like the 30s and 40s so like that's it's true. using it's like it's it's using cinematic language that has been handed down to it to create what it was. It would be something else if it had came first. And Scorsese himself is a genius, but like you look at say, um, I was thinking, I was just watching Raging Bull recently. It's a boxing movie, right? It came out in 80, I want to I think 1980. Um, and it's, it came out after Rocky one. And so it is really, it's, it's using, um, it's like, it, it, well, it's black and white, so and, and it's shot in a way that feels older. So it is, it's, it's recreating the genre. It's responding to the genre of movies like that, but it's also um, moving it forward. And so that's where, like, it couldn't have existed without a lot of movies from the 30s and the early Scorsese movies and the things that Scorsese learned and even, like, a lot of the crime movies, including The Godfather. So it couldn't have existed without those and it couldn't have been the same, it, like it couldn't have been the movie that it was without those things, but it also was doing things that then other movies were imitating after that. And that's the thing that- So it's place in the tradition, in the creation and development of the tradition. Well, that's what we that, don't know for a long time, right? We, you know, we're up in the right, mouth for right. 15 or 20 years, what a movie like Emma actually meant to the culture and to the, and to the form itself. Right. But that's why no, I love. That's why I love movies like um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, because it's not just like memorable scenes and memorable acting between Robert Redford and Paul Newman. 
who are incredible, Catherine O'Hara, but it's also, um, it's also creating ways of thinking about movies that from that point forward changed movies forever. Um, like the way it wrote, the way it wrote movies, like it was, you know, you know, buddy cop movies were like, it was in some ways like the, the OG buddy cop movie. I mean, it's not a really a buddy cop movie. It's the opposite of that, you know, cause they're criminals, but um, it changed the way the genre was thought of. So that's one of the things that I'm kind of always looking for is like, what is it hearkening back to? What is it paying homage to? What like, what is a, what kind of movies, what kind of stories are movies paying homage to? And then also in what ways are they trying to tell me something new about this art form, which is still not very old. You know, that's, and that's why we're like a hundred years into really a hundred years into movies, less than that into movies where people could talk. And, and then, so we're at that space now where we have the technology and people can try things that are new and exciting, but they can't do that except because we had, you know, Preston Sturgis in 1930s. Um, or we had right. John Ford in the forties, fifties and sixties. And then we had Scorsese in the seventies and eighties and even still today. So they have these people that they have to respond to, but also had they now have the technology to try new things. And that's why movies are so exciting to me. Um, but that's also true of novels. Like, you know, novels it seems like not that novels aren't that different in, in that way from, right. Uh, go ahead. Sure. Sorry. I was going to say the, the ability to adjudicate the quality of an artifact by its time period. And it's well, kind Chuck of like just ran back again the other way. Is he chucking wood? Uh, no, he stopped though. He stopped and looked at me. Oh, okay. and you think he knows that he's the subject update. of a podcast? Sorry, I had to give an update on the woodchuck. Go ahead. Yeah. The ability to um, adjudicate a film or a novel according to kind of the capabilities of its time, that's a really sophisticated ability. I, I mean, so my godsons were talking about the Star Wars canon and they were saying that um attack of the clones which is a profoundly bad movie <laughs> was better than empire uh empire strikes back which is a really good movie and i said a terrible thing what what you guys it's not it's just like no it's like empire strikes back is just a superior film and they're like but it looks so fake it looks so fake. And I was like, oh, right. They're like of that age that the only thing that they can really see is the, uh, th they can only see the technological capabilities of the era. They can't see story, acting, form, director, you know, they can't see all those sorts of things. And I like teaching at Gutenberg. I remember when we discussed um, Luther and Erasmus, that there's a, book on freedom of the will and it's a debate between luther and erasmus and my students hated luther hated him because he's so bombastic he's so bombastic and i would kind of try to make the case you know it was kind of the argumentative style of the 16th century and yeah it's really off-putting and yeah he it might even be called unchristian but maybe you could kind of like look past that and like try to consider the actual argument that Erasmus and Luther are making, but Erasmus is so bombastic. And I'm like, okay, I guess you just can't do it. You know, it's like, I mean, it's, it's a hard skill to develop because you're basically developing um, the ability to assess a whole like culture, world, era, timeline. I, yeah. I think it takes practice. I mean, like you just have to, 
like that's why watching like if you want to really understand how to watch movies then you have to watch movies that are older right because they're defining right. the characteristics of the art form like yeah they're def- so, which to your point is just like novels right right yeah. like you don't, okay so like one thing that you don't have to know why filmmakers like you don't have to be able to define what a different what like what an aspect ratio is right but if you watch older movies you're going to see how aspect ratios ratios changed and how that meant that storytelling changed like the way you could use right. the camera changed and so that meant that you had you were able to do and had to do different things and in fact yeah in many ways because of the difference in technology earlier movies are are much uh, more well-crafted because they were forced to be, I mean, many, I'm not saying all, like there's a lot of incredible filmmakers right now, but some of those early movies, because of their limitations, um, technically were telling stories in a way that was, you know, truly artful because they were working within, they were, because they were crafting a language and because they were working within um, a certain set of confines that, you know, like when you make the new Star Wars movie, in fact, we just watched we've been watching the star Wars movies for the first time with the boys. So we watched a new hope and the empire strikes back this week. And, um, and then I was thinking about the newer movies, which are so bombastic. <laughs> they're, they're the truly bombastic movies. Um, but like you can see Lucas and even Lawrence Kasdan in the screenplay and stuff in empire strikes back. You can see them having to be so much more precise and careful in what they're doing. And that makes the movies so much better than mm. when they have free reign to just use the computer to do whatever they want. Um, right. so, you know, I don't know the, what the, the, um, novelistic, you know, uh, corresponding idea equivalent is equivalent to that. Right. But that, if you want to, that's why if you want to equivalent movies, yeah, you gotta watch, you gotta watch old movies, watch black and white movies, watch movies where they didn't have as many resources. And even, even now, like watch indie movies because they have to be way more precise than movies where they can fix everything in post on the computer. Right. Anyway, we've been going longer than we said we were going to. So should we hang up? No, but it's good. I just want to keep talking about this because I'm curious. But another time, (laughs) another time is what we will do. Well, I should go check on the woodchuck, make sure he's okay. (laughs) Maybe I should duck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, woodchuck. All right, well. I don't think, I've never seen a woodchuck in the wild. This is a new, this is... I we wish I, I wish I could see here. a woodchuck in the wild. All right, Tim. Any final thoughts? No final thoughts, Heidi. I just feel like I have to change my rating based on that, and I don't even know what to rate it now. Think, think so. About it. <laughs> All right. Well, stay safe uh, for Holly White, Tim McIntosh. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.